Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim's message will ask a question about what does Jesus mean when he talks about hell? As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. If I, uh, if I haven't met you yet, if it's your first time here, welcome to South Harbor. We're really glad you're here. Um, you picked an interesting day to join us, uh, but hopefully that'll be okay. But we're glad you're here. Um, and, uh, and if I haven't met you, if you've been here for a while, stop by afterwards. We'd love to, I'd love to get to know you a little bit, and, um, or we can do coffee at some point this week. I'd love to, to get to know you a bit. Um, but if you have a Bible, we're going to dive right in. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 25 this morning, Matthew 25. Uh, we are continuing. We're almost to the end of a year-long study that we've been doing on the life of Jesus as told by the least likely of all the disciples, the guy that uh, by all, by all uh, lengths and measures probably shouldn't be a disciple. Uh, he is, uh, in the eyes of his world, an outcast. He's a traitor. He's a tax collector, which means he's, he's working for the enemies. And Jesus calls him, um, and in following Jesus, he begins to see who Jesus is, and he He's a disciple, and he writes down an account of Jesus' life that we call Matthew. Uh, and so we've been, we've been in a journey, um, and we're going to pick up in Matthew 25. Now, um, the passage we're going to look at this morning is one of the most beautiful and convicting passages in the entire Bible. Uh, this passage is Mother Teresa's go-to verse um, or go-to passage. Uh, this is a passage that she quotes all the time, and there's a lot here. Um, but we're going we're to do something a little different this morning. Uh, typically, what we'll do is we will uh, fly real low, look at the passage, what did Jesus say, and how did he say it uh, in the context of his world and his day. Uh, typically, we fly really low. Um, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to fly a little bit higher. Uh, we're going to spend some time thinking about some theology, and uh, especially... Uh, we want to look at a concept or an idea that uh, has been brought up a number of times now. In fact, um, uh, if, if you've been here uh, throughout this whole series, you probably, there's a word that has come up from the lips of Jesus more than anyone else. This word has come up again and again and again, and uh, we keep preaching, I keep preaching and talking, and we've not stopped on the word. We've read it, but we've not actually stopped to talk about the word. Some of you, uh, as we've come across those passages, have probably been thinking, like, why, why aren't you talking about the word? The word is right there. Why, why, are we talking about the, why are we talking about everything else, but we're not talking about the word? And, uh, and this word, this particular word, has caused more confusion, um, caused more uh, debate, has, uh, lots of ink has been spilled on this word. Lots of people have gotten really angry about this word. I posted on social media that this is where we're going um, earlier this week, and I had heard everything that over the last weekend from, you know, I'm excited for the, the fire and brimstone talk. To you better you better like uh, you better not do a fire and brimstone talk. <laughs> I got both those sides, uh, and, and it's been interesting because this is the word. It does something in us at a very visceral level. This particular word does something to us, and uh, and many of us like have this like whole baggage that we bring through the doors. Lots of that baggage comes from this particular word. Um, but we've we've read the passages, we've looked at the stories, but we've not talked about. The word. So what I want to do this morning is we're going to look at the, this particular subject through, the, um, through this passage, Matthew 25, but then we're going to zoom out and kind of talk about, about the word. 
Now, um, some of you are thinking, are you avo- have you been avoiding it? I've not been in- avoiding it in- intentionally. I'm, I, though I realize that this particular thing is pretty controversial, and especially in this part of our world, um, but it's not been an intentional avoiding. I've really, what I've wanted us to do before we talked about the subject is I wanted us to get a sense of who Jesus is first. Um, what, was, what, what, made, what was his mission? What made him tick? Uh, what made, like, what was he passionate about? So I wanted to spend a year talking, getting to know Jesus. And now that we've spent that year, um, we, I think, are ready to talk about the word. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, men and women, friends, kids, if you're in here, uh, this, this morning we're going to talk about hell. Let's talk about the word. Um, as a kid, I was not allowed to say the word, so that's why I call it the word. Um, but uh, we're going to talk about <laughs> we're going to talk about hell. Uh, now, um, uh, disclaimer: obviously, we don't have time to talk about all the things and all the questions. You maybe have some questions that you're hoping you get answers to. I'm going to do my best to hit uh, in a way that actually worked really hard on this one to 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 be interesting. But also, far more important to me is to be biblical and helpful. Um, but there's going to be some things that we're just not going to get to all of it. And so uh, I encourage, if you've got questions that just we didn't talk through, um, either it's because I still have questions on that, I don't know, or it's uh, we just didn't have time. So let's grab coffee. Um, I promise I'll pay for your coffee. Let's grab coffee. Let's talk. Um, but that's the disclaimer. We're not going to get to everything. But uh, let's start like this. Um, when we think about hell, when you think about hell, H-E double hockey sticks. When you think about hell, <laughs> what images come to your mind? My hunch is when you think of hell, the images that come to your mind most likely come from movies or TV shows. Uh, most likely, uh, they actually, if you, if you trace those images back far enough, you're going to bump into a guy named Dante and a book he wrote called Dante's Inferno, or maybe Milton and Paradise Lost. Um, but uh, this is not an endorsement of these TV shows or movies, but let me show you. In fact, I don't recommend many of these. Um, but let me show you uh, some of the ways that I think our imagination on, on hell have been shaped by the images we've seen in movies and TV shows. And this is just a, a sample size of uh, the different images. Often uh, you see, that's Ned Flanders. It's kind of funny. Um, often you see Satan and he's got horns and a pitchfork and a tail. Uh, he's often red. It's images of red and fire. Red and black are the dominant images. Uh, next slide. Here's a few more. Again, don't recommend all these shows, but it's, it's dark. It's creepy. Um, these are the kind of images that keep you up at night. Next slide. Uh, Bill and Ted. So. <laughs> it's coming. We're going to win that game. Uh, Oh, man. Yeah, Ohio is Ohio. Uh, Yeah, often when we think of hell, these are the, like, hell tends to, like, as we think of hell, it's, it almost feels like, okay, we've got a devil or Satan with a pitchfork. He's red. He's got, uh, there's flames in in hell. We often read about fire or think of fire. Um, We often think of of agony and torture. And then the language we use is always down, right? Like down. So we often think, okay, heaven is up, and when we think of heaven, we think blue and white. And then when you, or maybe blue and yellow, um, and then you think hell, you think down, right? Like, and, it's, and it's always that. It's always, are you going up to heaven, or are you going down to hell? This is our dominant language when we think of hell. It's either, are you going up or down? And in many ways, uh, heaven and hell get pitted as opposites of each other. God is the king of hell, and Satan is the king of hell, uh, or God is the king of heaven, <laughs> I, yeah, 
Uh, and Satan is the king of hell. That's how we, we think of him. And they're kind of, we tend to show them as equal opposites. And they're like at a war for our souls, God versus the devil. And one is the king of this realm and the other is the king of this other realm. These are the dominant understandings. Uh, and uh, the, the typical language we use is after we die, right? Like it's, it's you know, do you know where you're going to go after you die? Are you going to heaven, up, or are you going down to hell after you die? Now, um, where this uh, gets added a layer, if you grew up in the church, um, where things get a little more confusing, other questions start getting piled on is how people have interpreted people who have interpreted people who have interpreted the Bible. Now, I say that intentionally because uh, if you actually read um, the, the people who have written on this, the, the, often the people that we're interpreting don't actually say this, but we tend to generalize what they said. In particular, I'm talking of a, a guy named John Calvin. You've heard of John Calvin? Um, in seminary, they referred to him as the other JC. So you know what seminary I went to. Um, but uh, often it's, a, it's like a copy of a copy, right? It's never actually what John Calvin said. Remember the movie Multiplicity? Michael Keaton is dating me. Um, kids, I grew up in the 1900s. Um, it's a movie from the 1900s. Uh, which, uh, but the, if you remember the movie, Michael Keaton makes a copy of a copy of a copy. And by the time you get like three copies down, it's, it's kind of the same, but not at all the same. Um, in many ways, what we've done with a guy like John Calvin and the words he said about hell is we've copied and copied and copied. And then you end up with some kind of a version that says something uh, that, like this. God chooses to punish you eternally, eternal conscious torment is often the language that gets used, and God chooses to punish you eternally, eternal conscious torment, before you were born. That can mess people up. I've actually met people that that theology has messed up significantly. Again, it's a copy of a copy. It's not actually what he says. It's far more nuanced what he says, but um, but this idea that God chooses you before you were born, you don't have a choice in the matter. You are chosen there. Uh, The word that gets used often is the word reprobate. Some people are, are chosen for salvation. Others are reprobate. They have no shot. They have no chance. No matter what they do, no matter what they believe, they've got no shot. God chose them for eternal conscious torment. Now, um, this is why the conversation matters to me. This is why I, uh, I wanted us to get a sense of who Jesus was first. Before we kind of dive into this stuff, it's, it's hard. It's complicated. I will look at uh, in fact, I'm going to show you every single usage of the word hell this morning. Uh, so we'll look at all that. Um, it's not as long of a list as you may think. Some of you are like, oh no, it's going to be a while. Um, but I wanted to get a sense of who Jesus was first because Jesus, when you actually look at the life of Jesus, uh, what you find with Jesus is Jesus again and again will say to his followers, and, and the, the Christians who will come after Jesus will remind their followers that all of our understanding of who God is should come from Jesus. So everything, uh, Paul will use the language of everything before Jesus was like a shadow. Uh, And so we can understand some things from the shadow. You can kind of tell some things about me from my shadow, but you really can't tell everything from my shadow. But Jesus is the image, Paul will say, the Apostle Paul. Uh, And these are the languages, the language we find in our scriptures. John 1, 1 says that Jesus is the word of God. There's not a lot of words of God. There's one word of God, and it's Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the image of God, Colossians 1, 15. There's not a lot of images of God. There's one image of God, and that's Jesus. He's the form of God, Philippians 2, 6. Uh, My favorite is Hebrews 1, 3. Jesus is the singular, perfect representation of God's essence. There's not a lot of that. There's just one. Uh, And then uh, Jesus himself will say that if you've seen me, You've seen the Father, 
John 14. Uh, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, the reason I start here is our dominant understanding of who God is must be shaped, must be formed by who Jesus is. is that, are we clear on this? Now, now you're thinking, well, what, what, what about hell? What about, like, Jesus? Here's the thing. More than any other person, by far, Jesus does talk about hell. We have to wrestle with it. Um, but we have to wrestle with it looking through the lens of who Jesus is. But Jesus does more than anyone else. By far, he talks about hell. In the passage we're going to look at this morning, um, the, the, the word isn't actually used in the passage, but the idea is there. You'll, I think you'll see that. It's Matthew 25, verse 31. Um, now, again, if you're new with us, you, you, are, you chose an interesting week. I'm glad you're here. Uh, let's be friends. Let's be friends. Um, but uh, it, it is an interesting week. Um, what we're going to do uh, this morning is we're going to look at a middle of a conversation. Some of us have been studying this conversation for a few weeks, uh, but essentially the conversation gets started by, uh, by Jesus' disciples. Jesus has, has been in these debates with the religious leaders. He's now le- he's left the Temple Mount, and he's headed up a mountain range, kind of a glorified hill known as the Mount of Olives. And uh, from the Mount of Olives, you can look down on the Temple Mount, and from the Temple Mount, uh, the disciples say, Jesus, when is the temple, or from the Mount of Olives, they say, when is the temple going to be destroyed? Because Jesus said it's coming down. And then Jesus launches into a really long speech. Uh, and in that speech, he says a lot of things that get interpreted a lot of ways. We've talked about the rapture. We've talked about the end of the world. All, these are all the things that get loaded into this speech. But they're, Jesus is responding to the question, when is the temple coming down? Now, in that, he then says these words, Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will, be, he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are prepared you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Let's pause there. You can see why this is Mother Teresa's favorite passage, right? This is, she gave her life to working with the poorest caste in India, uh, the untouchables. Uh, and so this becomes a, hey, the least among us, like we're called to serve them. That's where Jesus often meets us, is through the least. Um, Jesus uses language of sheep and goats. One of my um, favorite things to do in Israel is to look for the goats. Uh, you can always tell goats from sheep when uh, shepherds walking with goats and sheep because the sheep will follow the shepherd and the goats will always do their own thing. Uh, every group in Israel has a few goats and they're always off doing their own thing. We lose them. They're standing somewhere in the shade while the rest of us are walking. Um, there's sheep and goats. And so Jesus uses an image that his culture would have understood. There are sheep uh, and the sheep follow the shepherd, the shepherd being God. And then there are goats and the goats think they can do it their own way. They think they know better than the shepherd. 
They think, and often it's the goats who, get, who will fall off the side of a cliff or they'll get lost and separated from the pack. Okay, so that's Mother Teresa's life go-to passage. And now things are going to take a bit of a turn. Then he will say to those on the left, the goats, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment and the righteous to eternal life. Stop there. Depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. It does feel extreme, doesn't it? What do we do with these words? What do we do with these words? Uh, It seems um, like on the one hand, you have this image of Jesus. He's forgiving and he's loving. And he says, um, come follow me, you who are heartbroken and, and carrying heavy weight and heavy burdens. And I'll give you peace and I'll give you rest. And then on the other side, you have these like really hard words of, what do we do with these Eternal, like eternal fire, uh, cursed, prepared for the devil and his angels. It feels different. What do we do with these? Um, now, uh, if, you, if you've read about this, if you've been paying attention over the last probably decade especially, a lot of ink has been spilt on this particular subject. Lots of ink. Um, there are two books that uh, almost act as speaking partners that have got, gathered the most attention when it comes to the subject of hell. The two books are Rob Bell's Love Wins, and then a kind of a rebuttal to that book is a book called Erasing Hell by Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle. Um, these two books really are tackling the same subject, but they're coming at it from very different angles. Uh, I recommend, if, you're, if you've got questions, you actually read both of them. What you'll discover is you'll kind of see the edges of the conversation, and there's a conversation in between these books. Okay? Interesting books. Now, I don't personally, I think, there's a, I think there's a more helpful book on the subject. So if you're going to read one book, uh, I would actually recommend, so if you, if you can, if you're really interested, read them both. But if you're going to read one book, it's actually neither of those books. Both of these books, I think, uh, tackle the subject from a philosophical standpoint. They ask really important philosophical questions. Um, but I highly recommend a book called The Skeleton The Skeletons in God's Closet, Um, the subtitle is The Mercy of Hell, Surprise of Judgment, and the Hope of Holy War. Um, And what I love about this book is what uh, Joshua Ryan Butler, the author of the book, you probably, anybody heard of this book before? It's way less famous. Um, Because what he's doing is way less, uh, in many people, like it's just, it's it's harder to get get our hands around. But I think it's, I, I, I appreciate his approach more. Because what he's trying to do is look at the scriptures through the lens of the entire biblical story. Like, what is the biblical story? When we find this word hell, where does it sit inside this larger biblical story? And once you see kind of where it fits inside the larger biblical story, now you can start to see that many of the images we've got of hell, the, the Simpsons and South Park and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, and all many of our images of hell really are a caricature of the scriptures. Uh, and... You know what I mean when I say caricature? You ever like have a caricature drawn? 
It, it, I don't recommend it. It's quite, it's quite the experience. Um, I've had my caricature, caricature drawn. Um, the nature of a caricature is to distort or exaggerate or overly simplify, right? And so they often are quite funny because they're going to look for the, like, you're, yeah, that's Mr. Bean. Um, somebody said, that doesn't even look like much of a caricature. Yeah, he's got... Uh, but I had my caricature drawn a, a, few, a few years back, um, and so I've got, uh, this is not news to you, but I don't know why I'm even saying this, but I've got a semi-large nose, and, but yet in my caricature, my nose was like Gonzo from Sesame Street, just like, because it's going, because the nature of a caricature, caricature is to exaggerate, distort, or overly simplify, and so it looks for images, and it pulls them, and it distorts them, and it overly simplifies them. Now, uh, the the dominant response to a caricature is one of three that I can think of. Either it's humorous, and so you laugh, or it's, uh, it's humiliating, and you're like, okay, now I feel embarrassed, or I feel some shame. So it's either humorous, or humiliating, or it's horrifying. Like, I can't believe, I can't, is that what I look like? So our responses to caricatures are either humorous, humiliating, or horrifying. And I think that's how uh, many, many people, when it comes to the subject of hell, especially as we see hell in movie and TV, um, many people's response is either they laugh at them, they feel embarrassed by them, or they're horrified, like, is this what the end is? So we either laugh at it and say, this is kind of funny, or we're humiliated, or we're horrified. Uh, for many, um, the pictures of hell, these images of fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth, and eternal conscious judgment and eternal conscious court, all that, um, they've been distorted. And so for many people, it's something to laugh at. And, uh, and for many people, it can be kind of funny. Um, I just bumped into this meme. I thought it was clever. Um, Jesus says, let me in. Why? So I can save you. From what? From what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. Uh, <laughs> which, is, which is humorous. Um, but at the same time, it's a little bit humiliating for those of us who, who are Christians, right? Like, it's a little bit humiliating because um, if, if Jesus is everything to you, which I know for a lot of us he is, um, this is a caricature of what Jesus was about. This isn't true. Like, this isn't who Jesus, we know this. And so it's humorous to some, but it's also humiliating at some level. This isn't who he is. And for some, this is absolutely horrifying. Uh, this idea that God is this, this cosmic monster who doesn't just send people to hell, um, he lights the fire and shuts the door. And uh, there are some really sincere, good Christians who, who this theology has, um, has led them to do profoundly dumb things. And so what do we do with it? And at the same time, you're thinking, yeah, but sin is serious. And so that's why it's sin is absolutely sin is serious. And uh, that's why we have to talk about this. We have to. Um, but, but my hope, this is my long introduction, my hope is to recover the true image behind the caricature. Why does Jesus say what he says? What does Jesus actually say? What do the scriptures say about, about hell? Um, and it's because sin is serious, um, and it's so serious that Jesus, more than anyone else, keeps bringing up the word. And so uh, what is the larger story? What I appreciate about this book is it does a really good job helping us understand the book. What is the larger story of the scriptures, um, and how does hell fit into that story? Now let's do a little bit of an experiment. Here's an experiment. Uh, it's worth trying. I, you, you can do it now, or just mark it mentally. I'll, I'll show you the experiment on the screen. But um, if you were to go right now to, anybody ever hear of Bible Gateway? 
It's kind of like the go-to. It's one of the go-to places if you want to see all the translations of the Bible. So if you were to go to Bible Gateway, and uh, in the search bar of Bible Gateway, you were to put in the words heaven and hell. So like right here in the search bar, and these are, by the way, all the things I look at. Um, and then over here, you were to choose your translation. Let's go with NIV. It's, one of the, it's the most published translation. It's one of the most widely accepted, reliable translations of the scripture, okay? So if you were to put heaven and hell, and then new international version over in the search bar, and then you were to hit search before you put it up on the screen, how many, how many hits, how many times do you think those two words show up in the same verse in your Bible? Take a guess. 100 times? Is that what you said? 100,000? I'm hearing less? I'm hearing more? Less. 80? Vanna White says? Zero. I know. There's zero times. Now, certainly heaven shows up in your Bible. Certainly hell shows up in your Bible. These two ideas are in our scriptures. But not once are, is there one verse that puts heaven and hell in the same verse. Think about how often we use that language. Are you going to heaven or are you going to hell? There's not one verse in the entire Bible. You can fact check me on this. There's not one verse in the entire Bible that puts heaven and hell in the same passage, in the same verse. I know, I'm letting this process. It's a lot. Um, zero, 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 zero. Now, uh, another search for you. If you were to put into your search bar, not heaven and hell, but heaven and earth. How many times do the words heaven and earth show up if you were to search the NIV, one of the more reliable translations of the Bible, uh, and you were to search for those, how many, how many verses do you think? 150? 20? Banner White shows? 195. 195 times you find the words heaven and earth in the same verse. My point in this little experiment, in fact, actually, by the way, the very first words of the scriptures, God created a new heaven, or God created the heavens and the earth. And the very last words of the scripture, God creates a new heaven and a new earth. Um, and my point in showing you this is the dominant thread of the scriptures talks about heaven and earth. Certainly this, this reference to hell, so we gotta figure that out. But, but the dominant thread, thrust of the scriptures is God saying, I'm creating a heaven and I'm creating earth. Heaven in the scriptures becomes the, the, the realm in which God is king. Earth becomes the realm in which we live. And the dominant thrust of the scriptures is how do we repair what has been broken between heaven and earth? Uh, you could actually sum up the scriptures in three movements. Movement number one, heaven and earth are created by God. Uh, the design of heaven and earth is that God wants to walk with humanity hand in hand. Genesis 1-2, God walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. That's the language of the Garden of Eden. God walks with his people in the cool of the day. I think we have echoes of this still, by the way. Like, if you ever go uh, late at night um, and go for a walk, I feel like there's something magical about those, that, that time. And I think our soul remembers this moment of walking with God in the cool of the day. So movement number one is heaven and earth were created by God and they were good. Movement number two, heaven and earth are torn by sin. Uh, heaven and earth have been fractured. Movement number three, God will restore 
heaven and earth. That's the end of the scriptures. Heaven and earth are destined for reconciliation. Jesus calls this reconciliation the kingdom of God. Jesus continues to say his dominant message is, our job is to to join God in restoring what has been broken. Will it be fully restored right now? No. But someday, God will restore heaven and earth. But right now, earth has um, has like a cancer. And this cancer is infecting us, and it's affecting us, and the cancer's growing, and it's spreading. That cancer that is caused by sin, the Bible calls that hell. And ultimately, where will that cancer go? Well, it can't be in God's new heaven and new earth, not as God designed it. Ultimately, that hell has to be purged from the body, purged from the earth. And so that then becomes the eternal picture of hell. Does this make some sense? Maybe not. Okay, let me show a picture that maybe helps. Uh, the image on the left, I'm sorry, it's so blurry. I didn't notice it until it was on the big screen. But uh, the image on the left is how many of us have conceptualized heaven and hell. It's why we think that there's so many references to heaven and hell in our Bible, because we've, been, we've conceptualized that we live here, and when we die, that's always the language, where are you going to go when you die? We are going to either go to heaven or we are going to go to hell. And so heaven is clouds and hell is fire. That's a dominant conception uh, as many people understand it. The, a far more biblical conception of heaven and hell is we live here, our earth is infected and affected. Um, you see it all over the place. You see heartache, you see disease. Um, from some, some of this infection comes because of the choices we make. Still to this day, we make choices that hurt each other. We make choices that um, destroy each other. And sometimes it's just happening at a, like a, at a tectonic plate level. The earth itself, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, one of the first church planners, talks about how the earth is groaning. Creation itself is groaning for this to be put back together. So our earth is groaning. It's like it's caught on fire. When Jesus comes, as, as the passage says, when the Son of Man comes to in his glorious, uh, with all his angels and his, in his might and his power and sits on his throne, earth will be purged of the hell. Heaven will collapse and collide into earth. Heaven and new heaven and new earth. Until then, our job as Christians is to pray that we might join God. This is the prayer Jesus gave us. That God's kingdom would come and God's will would be done on heaven and earth. On earth as it is in heaven. Now, does this make a little more sense? Okay. Does the picture make some sense? Um, now, uh, we keep fighting the fires in our world, we keep, and it, they keep raging. How can that be? Um, and, and is it always going to be that way? Right? That's how it feels, right? Is it always going to be? The reason why people are so, like, this is such a big deal, because this world feels broken. We feel the breaks. Is it always going to be this way? And what Jesus and the early church insisted is that, no, it will not always be this way. Someday, God's going to repair what's broken. The cancer will get purged from the the body. And those who don't want that, those who are benefiting off of that, well, they'll be part of the purging. We'll come back to that. What do we do that? It's complicated, I know. Um, Let me give you another picture that might help. Another picture that might help. Uh, Imagine a city. And uh, the city has a king. And uh, the city is, we'll call this the city of peace. The king of the city is good. The king of the city is really, really good. 
Um, the king of the city's values are that everyone in the city is safe, everyone in the city has value and worth and significance, and everyone in the city, uh, everyone in the city essentially is thriving. It's a city of peace. Um, but in order to keep the city the city of peace, some rules have to be put in place, right? You, you can't kill each other because that will ruin the peace in the city. You can't lie to each other because that will ruin the peace in the city. So there's some rules put in place by the king to keep the city of peace the city of peace. Now, uh, let's imagine there is an enemy. The enemy's not in the city of peace. The enemy's outside of the city of peace. But the enemy uh, is insisting that you don't have to follow the way of the king. The king... Yeah, I know the king is saying that he's, he's got it in for the good of all the people, but come on, like, you, you, you can be your own king. You don't have to follow the, the king. You don't have to bow to a king. You can be your own king. What are the costs of that? Well, uh, yeah, yeah, it's going to cause some, it's gonna cause some issues, right? If you have your own rules, and fight, we're going to bump into each other, and sometimes it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to cause some issues, but lots of people follow this enemy because lots of people want to be their own king. And so outside the city, imagine the picture, outside the city, uh, the people have left the city of peace and they move outside of the city. And outside the city, they, they're their own king. But everyone's their own king. And so we're bumping into each other. Sometimes people are dying. Sometimes even children are dying. And fires are getting started. And essentially it's kind of getting turned into a dump outside of the city. Because we don't want to follow the king inside the city. And so slowly, oh, and by the way, there are some people inside the city of peace that every once in a while think, you know what, I think what's outside the city should be part of our city. And they crack the gates open. And every once in a while, all of the things that are outside the city, the fire and the dump and the, the killing, it kind of sneaks its way into the city. And we still call it, they'll still call it the city of the king and the city of peace but actually, that fire kind of is creeping its way into the city. Now, um, this isn't my picture. This is Jesus' picture. This is the picture Jesus gives his disciples. This is the image. When you think of hell, that's exactly the picture. Okay, let me show you. Let me get a little bit academic. Uh, stay with me through some academia. There are four words in our Bible that sometimes get translated uh, as hell. There are four words. One is an Old Testament word. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew, and the Old Testament word is the word sheol. Let me hear you say sheol. Sheol. Um, and uh, then there are three Greek words. The word Hades or Hades, the word Gehenna, and the word Tartaros. What I want to do is show you every single usage of the word hell in five minutes uh, in your Bible. Every usage of the word hell in your Bible. Let's start with the Old Testament word sheol. The word sheol. It, this word shows up a lot in the Old Testament. And it's often we're going down to sheol. The King James translation, one of the first translations, translated Sheol as hell. We're going down to hell when we die. That's the language you find in the Old Testament if you translate Sheol as hell. However, most translations now will not translate Sheol as hell, um, but as the grave or the pit. Because here's what we learned from our, uh, our Jewish friends and how they read the word Sheol. It doesn't mean hell. Um, and we know this because everyone in the Old Testament goes down to Sheol. And so what they understood was everyone goes to the grave. Everyone goes down to the pit when you die. We all die. Abraham goes down to Sheol. Isaac goes down to Sheol. Uh, Jacob goes down. David, King David goes down. Moses goes down. The, the righteous prophets, they go down to Sheol. Everyone goes down to Sheol in the scriptures, in the Old Testament. Because 
Sheol is the grave or the pit. So in your NIV, you will find it in most modern translations, the best translations, you will not find Sheol translated as hell. You will find it translated as the grave or the pit. Okay, so, the, so there are zero references in your Old Testament to hell. That's a lot, I know. Um, okay, how about the New Testament? That, well, the New Testament does uh, translate some words as hell, and um, it's not a, they're not bad translations. The first one is the word tartaros. Uh, there's one reference to the word tartaros that uh, gets translated hell. It's only mentioned once in our New Testament. It's in 2 Peter 2, verse 4. Um, now, uh, tartaros, uh, it, it's a loaded concept. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. Um, and you really shouldn't build an entire theology off of just one instance in your Bible, especially one instance in a minor letter. Um, what does it mean, though? Uh, Tartaros comes from Greek mythology, and it's this idea, it's a a place they believe that was below, uh, so you have the place of the dead, then you have a place below the place of the dead where the angels are held and will be tortured. And so Peter seems to be using language from Greek mythology to try to tell his audience about the, the love of Christ and how Christ's love even goes that deep. We translate that hell. That's in our Bible. Uh, the, the next word we translate hell, the second Greek word uh, in our New Testament is the word hades. This word's used far more often. It's referenced four times in Revelation, the Old Testament, or the, New Te- the last book in our New Testament, and then four times by Jesus himself. Um, although uh, two of those are um, the same story, just told by two different authors. So uh, really th- three times. Um, and then I give you up here, Take a screenshot if you want them all. Um, but those are the references uh, to Hades. Now, what is Hades? Uh, Hades is essentially the Greek equivalent to Sheol. Everyone dies and everyone goes down to Hades. Uh, everyone goes to Hades. That's the understanding. Um, and there's some Greek mythology built on that with the god of the underworld, uh, the, some Greek mythology. But essentially, the idea was everyone goes down to Hades. So when, when you find these reference to Hades, like, for instance, this reference in Caesarea Philippi, this was a reference to what they called the gates of Hades. We, we looked at that passage. Okay, so probably not what we're thinking when we think hell either, this word. Now, the third word is, okay, so here's, this is the stuff that we, we should really slow down and we have to wrestle with. This third word is the word Gehenna. Gehenna gets translated as hell. This word is used once by James, Jesus' brother, and 11 times by Jesus himself. That's every usage of the word Gehenna. Gehenna. Uh, now, again, it's, it's probably not as many as you would think, but it's a lot. We should take it serious. It is a lot, and it's by Jesus, more than anyone else by far, with the exception of James once, Jesus 11 times. So what do we do with Gehenna? What's it mean? Well, it turns out Gehenna is an actual place. I'm going to slow down here because I remember when I first learned this, it was a lot to take in. And if this is the first time you're hearing this, this is a lot to take in. Um, Gehenna is an actual place in Jesus' world. Uh, The word Gehenna comes from two Greek words. The word ga, which means the valley, and hinam, which is a proper name. The valley of hinam. Uh, Gehenna is the valley of hinam, and it's here uh, on a map. So Jesus teaches here, this, the Kidron actually comes around this side too. Um, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives when he's telling this and he's looking down and you can see the Hinnom Valley. The Hinnom Valley is here where the Kidron and the Hinnom Valley meet is a place called Topheth. This is Gehenna. 
Now, how does Jesus use it? Because Jesus doesn't just point at the valley. Jesus is using it beyond just the valley. But this is the valley. Uh, the valley sits right outside the ancient gate. Now the city is kind of spilled over and into it. Um, but the valley sits right outside the ancient gate. Today, by the way, I was asking my uh, tour guide the last time we were there um, about Gehenna. because we want. I thought it would be fun to do lunch in Gehenna so that everyone could say they uh, had a hand basket in hell. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> He said it's a park, and mostly it's where kids today go to make out. So hell's a really nice little soccer field, and it's where kids go to make out. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, so why did this become the vision of hell? Why does Jesus, how does this get portrayed as hell in our Bibles? Where does this idea come from? Well, it turns out this valley has quite the history. It's got quite the backstory. Uh, this location has loaded history. And to the Jewish people, place holds history. It's why taking groups to Israel is so powerful because the place itself has layers of history stacked on itself. The place reminds you of stories. And the stories that happened here are huge. Uh, in particular, uh, write down this verse if you're taking notes. Uh, 2 Kings 23, um, verses, let's go 8 through 11. Uh, let me give you the back story. Uh, the word Jerusalem means the city of peace. So when I tell you the story about the city of peace, it's supposed to be God's city of peace. Okay, so that's Jerusalem. Um, but at the time of 2 Kings, the city of Jerusalem has been infected uh, because there are groups of people that are outside the city and they are doing some things outside of the city that has made its way into the city. And so a king comes along named Josiah who wants to clean up the city of God, the city of peace. He wants to restore the city of peace to the way of God. Here's what's going on in the city that he has to clean up. Uh, Josiah brought all the priests from the towns of Judah and desecrated the high place from, from Geba to Beersheba, where the priests had burned incense. He broke down the gateway to the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the city governor, which was on the left of the city gate. Although the priests of the high places did not serve at the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, they ate unleavened bread with their fellow priests. Again, so the city has gotten infected. The priests have gotten infected. See why Jesus might use this kind of language in our story? Okay. He desecrated Topheth, which was in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Ben means son of. It gets shortened in Greek to Gehenna. He desecrated Topheth, which was in Gehenna. So no one could use it to sacrifice their son or daughter in the fire to the god Molech. He removed from the entrance to the temple of the Lord the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. They were in the court near the room of an official named Nathan Melech. Josiah then burned the chariots and dedicated uh, the chariots dedicated to the sun. Okay, so here's the image. Topheth, let me show you the map again, is here. People are sacrificing children to a god named Molech in the fire. It's actually, we found some um, statues of this god Molech. You would essentially, uh, I, I apologize for the gruesomeness, but it's important, I think, to catch. Um, there was uh, outstretched hands, and you would place your child on it um, because the god demanded your sacrifice. And what matters more to you than anything else? Your child. And you'd place it on the, the outstretched arms of Molech, and the baby would roll into the mouth, which was a furnace. And people who claim to follow God are doing this practice. Okay, next passage. Uh, this is Jeremiah 7, verse 30. 
The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They have built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire. Something I did not command, no, I love this, nor did it enter my mind. I didn't even think about that. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Topheth or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. Then the carcasses of this people will become food for the birds and the wild animals, and there will be no, mo- no one to frighten them away. I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness and to the voices of the bride and bridegrooms in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, for the land will become desolate. It's a warning. It's a warning. The fire outside of the city has made its way into the city, and God will not allow it to make its way into the It will get restored. That's the warning. And how does the good king feel about it all? I didn't ask you to do this, nor did it come to my mind. I didn't ask anyone to do this. Why would you think that I would demand that kind of sacrifice? This is not the heart of God. Now, um, place holds memory. And so this place, this Topheth Valley, uh, this Valley of Hinnom, holds memory. And to the Jewish people, if you are building your city and you've got a city gate, do you extend into the valley? No. Because the valley holds memory. This becomes the picture of everything that is against God. Everything that is anti-God, anti-Christ, we would say, sits in that picture of sacrificing children. But more than this, um, it serves a very practical reason. Here's the practical reason. Uh, Every year, um, Josephus says 2.7 million. That's probably an exaggeration, but 2.7, let's just go with it. Um, let's go with a couple hundred thousand people would come to Jerusalem for the Passover and they would sacrifice lambs and those sacrifices would happen in the temple. But then you got to get rid of the bodies, right? You got to get rid of all these dead lambs. What do you do with the dead lambs? And you got all that blood that gets, that gets sacrificed. What do you do with the blood? Archaeologists just found a, um, uh, for those of you who are in Israel, we walked right by it, but it was closed. We were going to walk up the tunnel. Um, there's a tunnel that's a sewage system that was created to drain the blood from the temple and it, right down the southern steps into the valley because it runs downhill. And they would dump the bodies into the valley. And so the valley becomes a, essentially a dump. It becomes, and if you've ever seen uh, like dead animals, you start to see what like, gathers around dead animals, Right? Dogs, animals, some of the weeping and gnashing of teeth language, maybe, maybe. Um, the worm that never dies, that language, maybe, um, from this picture. Um, you, uh, methane, when you see, you ever go drive by a garbage dump and you see, like, the, they call it the eternal flame because they got to burn off the garbage methane. You uh, have spontaneous fires in ancient garbage sites because they're not burning off the flame. It's just combusting. And so this becomes the image that Jesus gives to his audience. This is the picture It's not down, it's out. It's outside of the city of God. Hell is every, the picture in scripture is not down, it's out. This is outside of God's way. The fires initially at least are not lit by God, they're lit by human hands. Everything that stands opposite of who God is. This is what sparks Jesus' anger here. By the way, Satan is not, if you read through the book of Revelation, Satan's not the king of hell. He's a prisoner there. And we often make it equal and opposite. In fact, if you read the book of Revelation, it's the angel Michael who defeats Satan. 
It's not even, God, like, it, like the idea that it's equal and opposite and like there's just war and I gotta, no, I mean, all Satan can do if we read the scriptures closely is whisper lies to us that we believe, right? As Christians, we are possessed by the Holy Spirit. That's our, possess- it's not down. That's language that you take from the King James, from the word Sheol, and it was down to the pit and down to the grave. We put that language in and then we mixed it in with some Dante's Inferno and we come up with this. But the picture Jesus gives is not down, but out. It's outside of God's way. Here's a second picture that might help. Um, Heaven forbid it. But let's imagine one of, heaven forbid it, but let's imagine one of my kids were to get cancer. Would I, if one of my kids had cancer, and I, if, would I, if I wanted to purge that cancer out of my child, would it be out of anger that I purged the cancer or would it be out of love? If there's a cancer infecting God's city, does God purge the cancer because he's angry at all those vile sinners? Or is it out of, like, this is not how it's supposed to be. The language you find in the scriptures is God grieves. Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, and it says that Jesus grieves. Adam and Eve sin, and God's heart grieves. Cain and Abel, Cain kills his brother Abel. God's heart grieves. Uh, the whole world is sinning under, with Noah, that story, and God's heart grieves. The language again and again is a God who grieves. Creation is groaning because the fire that we continue to light, and sometimes that fire moves its way into the very city of God, and we say, well, this is, this is what God wants. Um, and this is where Jesus is really, really important to listen to. Uh, We look around at our world and we look at the fires and we cannot wait until God deals with it. Here's a statistic. In the United States alone, between 500,000 and 100,000 women, it's hard to know the exact numbers, um, but 500,000 to 100,000 women and children are forced into sexual slavery every single year. In our nation alone, 500,000 to 100,000 women and children, the most vulnerable are trafficked, in our world. Uh, school shootings should not be normalized in our world. Uh, school shootings, did you know that um, in this last year, uh, there have been, not all school shootings, but 589 mass shootings in the last 314 days. Now, we hear these numbers, and I could go on and on with these numbers, and we say, that's not right. God, do something about that. And the language we find in the scriptures is God saying, my heart grieves over this. My heart grieves that the world is on fire. And here's what Jesus does to his disciples. He holds a mirror. Look up every one of those usage of of the word hell that Jesus gives. Every one of them is a mirror. And he asks his followers, where does the spark start? You want to deal with the fire. You want to deal with the fire that is human trafficking. Let's hold up a, a mirror and where does the spark start? Here's Jesus' words. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body go to hell. Does Jesus take hell serious? Absolutely. Absolutely. But then he holds a mirror and says, listen, where does the spark start? Uh, you, can, you can divide all those 11 instances that Jesus gives of hell into three categories. Lust, 
violence, and religious hypocrisy. It's where the spark starts. Uh, here's another one. Uh, we hate violence and we say, God, why don't you do something about school shooting? This is not how it's supposed to be. We should not send our kids to school scared. We should not have to cry in our car because we... Here's what Jesus says. You've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Racha, which is, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, it will be in danger of the fire of Gehenna. Is hell real? Absolutely. And Jesus holds the mirror to, to us and says, you have to start personal. If the picture of eternity is a banquet table in which, to quote Revelation, all tribes, languages, people, and nations are gathered, and you're racist, that has to be purged. If the, the communion table in heaven is all languages, tribes, and nations, and you think, well, I don't want them speaking that language. I want them speaking my language. Jesus would say, that mentality has to be purged. Uh, if the final picture of heaven is all people, the, the leaves of the tree for the healings of the nations, and we're simply like, well, what about my, we're the best. That mentality, Jesus says, has to be purged. And for those who say, well, I don't want to purge it. I think I'm right. Jesus says, well, then you, if you're not going to bow to the king, if your actions will lead to the destruction of the, the city of peace, you may go. Lots of questions remain, I know. Um, the... Uh, uh, is it, what do we do with the word eternal? There's a whole debate around how do we read that word eternal? Um, what do we do with that? Uh, um, is there a way back? That's a question lots of people have worth debating. Uh, do you get consumed by the fire or do you like eternally get consumed by the fire? Lots of questions remain. Um, my point, uh, I, think, I think maybe the point we have to land on is will we trust the king? Will we trust the king? Not just to say, you'll be our savior because you died for us. That's awesome. He died for us. But will we trust the king to be our Lord, to determine what is right and what is wrong? And the king continues to hold a mirror to our hearts and say, okay, but we have to look at this because that's the spark. It's not a fire yet, but that is the spark. The way you looked at her, the way you looked at him, that's the spark that leads to the fire. It's just a website. It's not a big deal. It's not hurting anyone. But that's the spark that leads to the 500,000 women. That's the spark. Jesus says we've got to deal with the spark. Um, let me be really, really clear. Uh, I believe uh, we in our world now, more than ever, in our, our world here today, we need Jesus. Far too many of us think we can be the king of our own hearts. And our marriages are dying because of it. And our kids are dying because of it. Um, we more than ever need to take seriously the, the, uh, the language of Jesus, the warning of Jesus. Behind the warning, we need to see a God who's not looking at us um, with this anger, but a God who sees the cancer infecting his creation and is grieving 
I, I think this morning can be an opportunity. I'm looking at the clock. Uh, uh, this is an opportunity for God to heal his church. Um, and we're going to take communion together this morning. Sorry, I lost track of time. Uh, we've got four stations in the front here. Uh, when you're ready, uh, the band will, be, will lead a song. You guys can come up. Uh, and um, take a piece of bread and dip it into the cup. Um, but let, let God heal something this morning. Let God heal something this morning. Um, if I, I recommend if you and your spouse right now are in a spot where your life is coming, your marriage is coming apart, take it together. Let God heal that. Let him begin to heal that. If, you're, if you and your child aren't talking, let God heal that. Would you pray with me, Lord? Jesus, we trust that you are a good king. And Lord, we recognize that um, we spend a lot of time thinking about uh, the fires after this life. And Lord, we recognize that for some of us, Lord, we are, our very lives right now are on fire. And so Lord, would you deal with the, the hell in our heart? But also, Lord, would you deal with our own contribution to it? Uh, Jesus, we take this very serious. In Christ, we pray this in your name. We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.